The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have been discussing over the course of the program uh, are the... Uh, rise and fall of civilizations in many cases we have talked about third millennium bc cultures in the middle east and in south asia uh, we have also had a number of programs on cultural fluorescence and collapse in the new world specifically the mesoamerican civilizations the incas and uh, the Midwestern and Southwestern cultures in the United States. Today's program, however, is about the the so-called Maya Collapse. And we have done a number of programs on that topic, but today's guest is a special authority on this issue. And uh, Anne Pyburn is a professor in the Department of Anthropology in the uh, College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University. She has done extensive research on ancient Maya cities, as well as more broadly based issues on the ethics of heritage conservation, gender issues in archaeology, and she has been involved in the development of new pedagogic methodologies and programs in archaeology generally. She is a very well-rounded and uh, generally a pretty forceful person in the profession, but today's topic, and we will try to stick to it, is the question of the Maya collapse. Uh, It's my pleasure to have you on the air. Thank you for appearing in. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction. Oh, it's it is based on some personal experience, and certainly <laughs> one of one of my more dynamic colleagues in a profession that very often is starved for such people. But in any case, that's another topic. What I do want to talk about, and 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 I think I think most most of the general public is very interested in this. We have in the layperson world, if we want to call it that, and in the general public, there is. 
a, a strong sense and a gravitation to uh, flashy issues in archaeology, if you want to call it that, and uh, words like collapse, disaster, uh, missing link, those types of issues are very catchy when we try to send the, if for lack of a better word, the more rigorous and possibly boring issues of archaeology out to the public. So I think the Maya collapse is, is sort of a catchword, and I would like you, if you can, to trace the evolution of that terminology and the, uh, the concepts associated with it, and then let's see if we can flesh it out into a more realistic context. So what is the historical basis about which people discuss the Maya collapse? Well, I, I, first of all, I think you've hit the nail on the head by talking, uh, by calling it a flashy topic. Um, I think that's very much um, the reason for its popularity. And it's not even so much because the topic itself is necessarily flashy, but because some media outlets and some professionals think that it's flashy and, and find it a good vehicle for selling particular ideas. But I don't think the opposite of this kind of flashy topic is boredom. And I think there are other ways to talk about Maya history that are equally interesting and important and even, dare I say, flashy, but that um, have been ignored in favor of a, uh, a, a very narrow uh, construction of uh, what is actually an extremely complicated subject. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin by simply talking about what's wrong with the construction, the Maya collapse. First of all, the term Maya, most people don't realize, refers to a language group that is uh, at least 21 separate languages, depending on how you calculate the difference between a, a language and a dialect, are, are all Maya languages. Some of the languages are mutually intelligible, some of them are not. We know that some of these distinctions are very old. We don't know how many languages were spoken at the time of Cortez, much less how many were spoken in the ninth century. We also don't know the relationship between language and culture. That is, many mm -hmm. people speak more than one language today, and in the past, um, Malinche, Cortez's guide, spoke several languages, and that was probably normal amongst Mesoamerican people. So language and culture are not the same thing. Um, at the same time, um, <clears throat> um, people of... Um, uh, different cultures often speak the same language. So in other words, um, the, the term Maya is actually a Spanish colonial period term that refers to a number of different groups of people who did not regard themselves as a civilization or a group of people. Um, tw 25 years ago, the Kekchi did not know they were Maya. They thought they were Kekchi. Mm -hmm. um, Maya thought they were Quiche or Mom or Chol or Lacadon. So um, the idea of Maya, um, it makes it necessary, if you're going to talk about Maya collapse, you're going to need to tell me which Maya, because the histories of these peoples and their interactions are, are complicated, and they're not uniform. The second problem is simply with the article, the, because I've, I've already explained that there's more um, than one kind of Maya person, one, more than one Maya culture or language, but there's also... Um, more than one um, kind of um, um, cultural um, group. So the idea that um, 
Um, there uh, is only one type of settlement, that there's only um, one type of um, change over time is also not correct. There is more than one event that could be referred to as a collapse, but these happened at different times and at different places. So there were transformations in settlement style and density and other sorts of material culture that you might call a collapse, but they occurred in the 3rd century at Mirador and the 4th century at Saros and the 8th century in the Pateshpatun at Canquin. So the Maya collapse, you have to say, which Maya collapse. Right. And some of these sites were depopulated and then repopulated, like Mirador was repopulated again later on. We have no idea which sites were depopulated and then repopulated over time. If you dug in a particular part of Detroit, you'd think it was abandoned, but you'd be wrong. So then finally, the term collapse is the most problematic at all, because despite the fact that so much has been said about it, it's really hard for us to actually explain conclusively what collapsed, because the data that we're talking about are the absence of data. It's the absence of a certain kind of architecture. It's the absence of a certain kind of monument. It's the absence of a certain kind of pottery. But really, what does that, what does that kind of change mean about civilization? Um, the classic Maya polychromes are gorgeous, but I wouldn't say their absence is necessarily evidence of a collapse. Right. But let's, uh, let, let's, let's explore that. I mm-hmm. think, and um, I think one of the ways to look at it, and, and this is especially true uh, when we discuss complex societies and when we dis- discuss these developments in sort of the very broadest context that we do, there's a tendency to conflate and, and a sense to overlump things together when, in fact, the minutiae are really critical, the details are critical. And if you're looking at, say, cultural complexes that are concentrated in a certain broader geographic area and you see that within, say, decades, centuries, in some cases even millennia, there are trends that in, for lack of a better word, replicate this themselves. They can, tend to get lumped together by, in many cases, pseudo-historians who look at these things in a very broad sense. But what you're saying is you really have to get into the details and you have to look at the, at, at, at the internal dynamics of whatever that cultural group or whatever that complex society went through. So why don't you take us through that in, in, in terms of the types of research that you've done, and let's look at uh, sort of the, the details that would flesh it out and give us sort of a broader perspective that's more accurate than just uh, conflationary, if we can say it that way. Okay. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I guess, um, um, first of all, I'd, I'd, I'd like to make a more general point following along what you just said, because I, 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 won't, I won't make much of it because it I can get pedantic, and I'll try not to. But you're talking about the nature of science, really. And mm-hmm. what what science cannot prove that something is true. It can only disprove something. So that if you waltz through the vast amount of information that's available on the ancient Maya that comes from an area of 150,000 square miles over a period of 3,000 years, and you pick those data which suit your particular explanation, you're not doing science. You're telling a story. And that has right. a certain value, but, but it's very problematic because those stories have a tendency to conform 
with the political context of the person who's telling the story, the person who's asking the question. And I wanted to say that the explanations that we have for the Maya collapse have been circulating around for a long time, but there's been some really interesting research done on which explanations are popular when. It turns out that according to statistical analysis, the first explanations for the Maya collapse that attributed it to warfare peaked at the first Vietnam moratorium. Overpopulation explanations peaked with the publication of Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. Environmental degradation explanations peaked on Earth Day. I think you can see why I am suspicious of the popularity of drought as an explanation in the present cultural context. That's not to say that these are not all factors, that they're inaccurate or untrue, but that it's kind of a warning sign to be careful about the context of the questioner and the kinds of questions that are asked and the kinds of information that are seen as acceptable answers to particular questions. So um, I think um, um, uh, I will, um, if you're interested, take each of these kinds of explanations um, in turn and talk a little bit about um, where they come from and uh, why I think they're inadequate. Um, but did you want me to go to something more general? Would you like for me to... to, to no, I think it? that's a really very interesting point that you break, make. I um, would, but I'll have to take a break first. So stay with us as we take a, a break in our program, and we will be back in two seconds or a few seconds, and we will continue this very, very fascinating discussion with Dr. Ann Pyburn of Indiana University on the so-called Maya Collapse. We'll be back very shortly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with our guest, Dr. Ann Pyburn. And we have been talking about the conceptual basis for what has been called the Mayan Collapse. And, Ann, you had said earlier as we were closing that first segment that explanations for such things as collapses seem to, if, if I get this right, and, and what your gist of what your message was, that those explanations in some way mirror sort of the trends of the day. In other words, uh, right now, for example, you were pointing out that there was a drought-related explanation for the the so-called collapse that seems to, for lack of a better word, have come into vogue because of the pervasiveness of climatic change and in, in sort of greater discussions of culture, science, and uh, conservation. Am I correct in that? Is that, uh, is that what, what you were saying before? Absolutely. I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that that the, the attention of the public is focused by contemporary concerns. But I think most people may not realize that the attention of, of archaeologists and other kinds of scientists is also focused by those same concerns, um, as well as the attention of media outlets and editors who decide which things are going to get published. So those data that I was talking about earlier are based on rates of publication for papers attributing the Maya collapse to those particular explanations. So, um, if, if, if it seems like a good idea, I'd like to take a couple of popular explanations and look more closely at them, um, beginning with warfare, which is a, uh, continues to be a popular um, uh, refrain amongst Mayanists. Um, okay? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that's um, what we want to do. We have um, obviously got... Uh, evidence for warfare um, in the form of iconography, that is, uh, depictions of various acts of violence um, and warfare. Um, and we have what appear to be defensive walls, even rapidly constructed in a few cases in the Batesh Batun. There's evidence of burning in a, in, a, in a very few sites. And occasionally there are graves of multiple people who appear to have died violent deaths. So taken together, this looks like good evidence for warfare, for even extensive and extreme or endemic warfare, as it has been termed. And I don't Mm -hmm. think there's any doubt that Maya people were involved in violent conflict from time to time. We don't know of any culture that has escaped conflict. But the extent and significance of the conflict are what have to be questioned. So... For example, depictions of violence, such as the very famous murals at Bonampak, are evidence that the Maya knew about violence, that they had experienced it, and they wanted to commemorate it, because these are scenes of, of apparent um, uh, violence against individuals and possibly even torture. But what we don't know is whether the murals depict something that's standard, ordinary, everyday occurrence, or whether it's something that's being depicted because it was unusual. 
I'm guessing that the depiction of extreme violence is not because it was the norm, but because there was something special and unusual about it. Being used to frighten the neighbors or to commemorate the fallen or celebrate a victory, maybe. But you have to think about iconography is not just a record of the truth. You would not count the number of crucifixes in Rome today to calculate the prevalence of crucifixion in Rome today, right? Those don't mean, they're not evidence of that particular kind of violence being perpetrated constantly. The association with violent images with ball games is another really popular um, image, arguing that the ball ball games always ended in violence against one team. That's a very popular um, public story. Um, But the truth is, although violence against one team or another may have occurred from time to time, and there's pretty good evidence that it did occur sometimes, I doubt very much if it occurred all the time, and I suspect that threats of violence were probably more the norm than the actual violence. I always think about the fact that my high school cheerleaders yelled, kill the cats, but they didn't really mean it, literally. (laughs) So you got to give the possibility of a little bit of team spirit. Um, So the real problem, though, I think with the warfare explanation is a logical problem, because if you think about it, historically, what, what's the purpose of warfare? Well, it's to take over somebody else's land, or at least right. to take over the people who are producing land and control them to produce something. Empty land is no good to a conqueror. So explaining the depopulation, um, if you believe, and most of the warfare proponents do believe in the complete depopulation of places like the Patesh Batuna, which is a result of warfare, what could possibly have been the purpose of that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, people want to, uh, to control uh, the places that they conquer. And if people would move away from a place that was, a, uh, for whatever reason, a good place to live, because there was violence in the area, why is there anyone living in the Gaza Strip? People just don't do that. Let me ask you a question here. Uh, certainly in mm-hmm. terms of the archaeological record and, and looking at these stela and the iconography, do we have any indications that the iconography that is uh, recovered on the stela and on these depictions, do we have any indications that they represent something factual or were they warning signals based on what we can see on settlement distributions for particular points in time? If you link up say, the archaeological record with a particular iconography or a particular episode in, in, in history or, or in, well, it would be prehistory, prehistory and that very fuzzy ground between them. Do we have any evidence that when there's a depiction of a great war, then all of a sudden the settlement distributions of a particular people have all of a sudden changed geographically? Do we have any information along those lines? That's really that's really hard to answer because um, if if what you're talking about is warfare that results in depopulation, of course you don't have any evidence of it. Mm. <laughs> right. No question. <laughs> if you if you have evidence of uh, you have evidence of physical violence in the form of mass graves of butchered people, right. burnt burnt dwellings, uh, and uh, violent iconography that seem to be occurring within a period of time. But, of course, remember, 
Um, um, we have absolute dates from the Maya themselves sometimes, but most of the time we have carbon-14 dates, which are plus or minus 100 years. Which makes so all the difference in the world. coincident with each other within 100 years is not necessarily very close. Of course. Um, in human times. But um, there's, there are very few places in which... Um, all of those data seem to co-occur. Um, the the Patesh Batun in Guatemala is about the only place where those kinds of data um, have been argued to all occur in the same place at more or less the same time. But even those, even there, the data are a bit sketchy. There are not nearly enough dead people. We're talking about the murder of literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people by hand, because right. we're talking about warfare perpetrated with pe- by people with pointy sticks and stone weapons sometimes edged with obsidian, but still, killing people by hand is a lot of work. <laughs> That's um, right. And we should really, we should have more evidence than we do. So let's talk for a minute about the various mechanisms and the various causational factors that have been entertained recently and the ones that you think uh, carry, uh, for lack of a better word, more water at the present than others. What are we looking at and how, 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 what, how is the state of the art and the reconstructions? How have they evolved over the past, say, 20 years in, in, in within the community of Mayanists? Well, I will say that warfare, overpopulation, and environmental destruction are are what my friend Rick Wilk calls zombie theories. It doesn't matter how many times you kill them, they come back. Right. Um, And (laughs) drought is another one of those theories, I believe. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to I'd like to spend a little time talking about the the drought hypothesis because it's so very prevalent today. It's so very popular. There was a an article came out in Science uh, Science News last week um, um, explaining that uh, the Maya uh, collapse. Uh, I think the, the caption was they did it to themselves, which is not my favorite. Um, explanation. <laughs> um, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, the, the idea of drought, because I think it has some very important um, political implications for the present and not the ones that, that are being attributed to it. Um, first of all, um, uh, we do know that some of the places that were depopulated, and, and I'll just say as an aside, we are not sure how completely they were depopulated, because Abandoning a stone building is not the same of abandoning or continuing to live for the next 500 years in a thatched hut on a dirt floor in the tropics, which mm-hmm. is a very different and much more subtle signature than the stone building. So we know the stone buildings were not being used. We have much less information about what ordinary people were doing. Um, but um, the one thing that does seem pretty clear is that places in the south of like southern Belize were um, abandoned or depopulated at the same time that cities further north in the Yucatan were growing. And some people have argued that one thing that was happening was that people were migrating from one place to another. The problem with that for the drought theory is that they were moving from places like the places in southern Belize where the average rainfall is 160 inches a year 
to places in the Yucatan where there is no surface water at all, and the average rainfall is something like 36 inches a year, not not in drought times. So you would move from a place that is so wet that personally I think a drought would be a cause for celebration to one of the driest places in Mesoamerica because of drought. I don't, that just doesn't work for me. Makes I, can't, sense, yeah. I can't make that fly. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that people who argue for drought seem to be uh, missing is the incredible complexity and uh, diversity and microenvironmental specificity of Maya agriculture. We have for a long, long time misunderstood just how complicated is the system that we're trying to reconstruct, thinking, oh, Maya agriculture was slash and burn. Well, actually, there are hundreds of kinds of slash and burn. And in fact, contrary to what most people think, if you understand your microenvironment, if you understand your soil regimes and your climatic change, you can make flash and burn sustainable and produce a surplus. But it depends on having a great deal of knowledge about the specific place that you are. But moreover, most Maya were not practicing slash and burn, certainly not at the height of the classic period. The number of kinds of intensive agriculture that the Maya were practicing is, is quite boggling. And even as we add more to the list of things they were doing, raised fields, ridged fields, um, island fields, uh, rivering fields, dams, canals, fish farming, um, the more we have a tendency to say, oh, the Maya were, part, were, were using grazed fields. Well, yes, some Maya were, and those same Maya were also probably doing some Sweden, that is some slash and burn on the side. So we're looking at a system that's incredibly complicated to reconstruct and to suggest that a change in rainfall is going to have a uniform impact across the very many complex microenvironments of Mesoamerica is, is simplistic to the point of nonsense. So um, uh, We're going to have to take another break here, Anne, okay. and uh, we will be back and discuss this very sensitive issue of the Maya collapse and its possible connection to drought conditions right after these messages. Please stay tuned. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, 
VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm back with the uh, program Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is a fascinating one, and we are discussing the entire question of the so-called Maya collapse, and we are looking at it from multiple directions, and we are looking at the types of problems and questions that have often been invoked to address this greater problem. And on the basis of contemporary archaeological methods and techniques, we do have the ability to focus in on a lot of the uh, mechanisms of change in culture and society. On the other hand, uh, it's pointing out, if anything, that the solutions are much more complex than we have envisioned in many cases. Uh, Dr. Ann Pybrin is our guest, and she's discussing one of these theories, which is the question of of, uh, drought as a primary uh, causational mechanism in the Maya collapse. And and one of the issues that that we've been targeting here is the entire question of agriculture. And we know certainly that uh, Mayan researchers have done extensive work on how water availability has changed and how it was managed in many cases. The the Maya settled certainly along the coast and they also settled in the interior of the Maya heartland and they also had the the ability to develop water management systems and irrigation systems. And so, Anne, if you would pick up on that and discuss this entire question of water management, drought, and climatics as one of these theories, I think that's something that we'd all like to hear about. There was, of course, uh, fluctuations in, in, um, in rainfall uh, have been continuous in Mesoamerica throughout um, human habitation there. So, although the argument has been um, that deforestation contributed to a particular drought that contributed to the Maya collapse, I need to make the point that these same droughts had occurred earlier or similar ones, and that no farmer can um, create a sustainable system that's based on the best year. Uh, Farmers create systems that are based on the worst possible year. And Maya farmers continue to farm the Maya area, the Maya lowlands, um, today, just as they have for 3,000 years, even though their systems have been interfered with, even though they've been pushed off of their um, their land. And even though when, of course, 80% of Maya-speaking people died at the conquest, a lot of, le- a lot of, of knowledge um, and a lot of connection to the landscape changed or was lost. Um, so um, I think um, uh, it's um, important to remember that some of the systems that were used in the past that are no longer used today um, 
should should be reconsidered um, with the thought for reconstruction because uh, a raised field system um, has to have been one of the most pr- productive tropical systems ever invented. People in other parts of the world have also used raised fields and still use them today. It's a technique of farming swamps in which canals are dug and the muck in the canals is used to build up the surface areas of fields. The fields can be flooded regularly to kill insects pests, and the muck in the canals where fish farming and snail farming was was done can then be used to refertilize the fields uh, regularly. So you've got a tropical agricultural system that is perfectly sustainable without pesticides and without uh, fertilizer. And it's uh, it's based on uh, farming uh, in swamps. So um, uh, you... I think can take from this at the very least that my agriculture was both diversified and based on some very um, sophisticated knowledge. So, um, so based on, on what you've been saying and based on this entire question of, of water management, drought, uh, how, how feasible is that as a comprehensive explanation and how carefully should it be integrated into other mechanisms that would account for culture change and adaptive variability? Well, I'm, I'm, just, um, I'm just skeptical that, um, um, uh, that, that, it is a, that it is a blanket explanation. Um, and I, I want to point out that some of the recent studies that attribute um, that, that use um, information uh, of, of soil erosion to um, um, support the idea that land misuse was a cause of depopulation, that the the dating of the soil erosion, that is, the coincidence of that erosion with population or depopulation, uh, is not easy to do. And in fact, it isn't. It isn't possible in most cases to be sure whether the depopulation occurred before or after the soil erosion. In fact, in many cases, my suspicion is that when people stopped tending their fields, when people stopped um, preventing erosion, when people stopped um, um, maintaining their sustainable agricultural practices and because they left, um, so soil erosion occurred. So um, rather than uh, insisting that it was a cause, it may well have been a consequence of some other kinds of change. Right. So if we want to place this in some kind of a perspective in context, let's go. Why don't you entertain some of the other questions that are associated with with the entire uh, issue of the collapse? Well, I think I'd, I'd like to say something about why this is a. Uh, 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 an issue that's so very popular um, because it, it relates to um, something that anthropologists call the, mis- the myth of the vanishing Indian. It's the romantic idea that the Native Americans whose land we now inhabit are gone, or at least all the real authentic Indians are gone. It's comfortable to believe that we don't owe anything to the people who were here before us, and it's comforting to believe that Native people disappeared because they couldn't adapt to modern culture or because, as is frequently said about the Maya, they did it to themselves. But conquest is not benign, uh, and it was genocide on a horrific scale. There were millions of Maya people still alive when Cortez showed up, 
80% died as a result of the conquest. The problem with the vanishing Indian myth is that there are millions of Native Americans throughout the Americas alive today. Many of them are living uh, members of vital living cultures and mm-hmm. not vanished at all. And the myth is insulting and frustrating to them. They're regarded as inauthentic if they have cell phones and televisions. The myth is that uh, if cultures change, they vanish. But it's the opposite that's true. If cultures don't change, they vanish. And Native American cultures are as adaptable as any other cultures. It's perfectly possible to be a Kekchi Maya person and have access to health care. When people in the 21st century don't have good health care and access to clean water and phones and televisions, they're not traditional. They're poor. So um, what I, I, I want to, to say um, uh, about these explanations is why it's important, why it makes a difference whether archaeologists and the media focus all our attention on the Maya collapse. Um, because it's tantamount to promoting this vanishing Indian myth. Um, and, and I'd like to tell a story that I think makes this problem clear. I went to Canada uh, some years ago. I was invited to a meeting called by a group of Maya people who had been watching archaeology videos about their ancestors and were horrified. And they asked the Canadian government to pay to bring some archaeologists to talk to them. And I was one of the archaeologists invited. And one of the women in the group, a Canadian um, uh, Maya woman, told a story. She said that when she walks down the street um, in British Columbia, in her traditional clothing, her traje, her, her, her Maya wipil, nice Canadian people look at her and say, where are you from? And she says, oh, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Maya. I'm from Guatemala. And they say, oh, I thought you were all dead. In which case she explains, no, I'm a refugee from the Guatemalan Civil War. At which, at which point the nice Canadian person says, what civil war? So the public all know about the Maya collapse, but they don't know that between 1960 and 1996, there was a horrible genocide perpetrated against the Maya. The woman who told me this story was a, a refugee in Canada whose entire family had been murdered during the Guatemalan Civil War. So when she told the story, she cried. I think it's really important for us to think about training our interest on um, a fanciful explanation of something that may or may not have happened in the ninth century, so that the people living today, most people do not know that there are 10 million Maya speakers living today. In fact, most people seem to think from my um, personal questioning of the public that there are almost no Maya or, or no Maya living today, or if there are any, they're not really Maya anymore. That's just not true, and it's, and it's not fair. So I think because we've been focused on telling one kind of story about how the Maya did something bad to themselves, we've missed the point of learning a much more important lesson. And that's, um, I always think about uh, an educational video that was made in the 90s that I used to watch when I was uh, a student and when I was first teaching. 
It was a pic- it was a, a video about Copan in which the archaeologists were talking about how, as a result of the misuse of land, the Maya of Copan had all um, uh, had all died or had all um, uh, moved away, and the site was abandoned. In the background of these of these archaeologists, there were about five or six Maya guys digging uh, in an archaeological site. Um, and so it was pretty obvious that the Maya people of the area were not all gone. They were there in the picture in the background. But the Maya guys in the background were dirty. They were thin. They were wearing terrible um, clothing. They were working, doing heavy labor in the hot sun. Um, and they were doing it because they have no land. They have no place to grow food. They're doing the best they can to survive in a situation in which most Maya land has been bought up by large multinational corporations that use it to grow cattle. So what I'm thinking that we may be looking at in the past, maybe a situation in which sites where that were managed estates, that is, sites where the land was not owned by small farmers, but where the production strategies were determined by people in large cities elsewhere, were the places that were most vulnerable to collapse. And that's, I think that because the site that I worked at for 20 years, Chowhees in northern Belize, did not collapse. It was occupied into the time of the conquest. But it's next door to Altin Ha that collapsed in the ninth century. Altin Ha is a rich site. It's on lousy agricultural land. Chowhees uh-huh. is a much more modest site. The agricultural land is fabulous. And the intensity of production was from canals that were more than a kilometer long. So it suggests to me that what we're looking at is changes in a political economy, in land use strategies, um, that um, were hard on people, on small farmers. People don't move from something, but they move to something. So moving from places where people didn't have the land that they needed to produce for their families to create sustainable strategies to places where they had a better, a chance at a better life. Um, that sounds to me like a better, more interesting explanation. And I think you can see why it has some important political resonance right. with the present world, just like it the does. more uh, traditional explanations. We'll be back with our final segment and discussion with Dr. Ann Pybrun of Indiana University right after these words. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. 
Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a very provocative program this afternoon. We are discussing the Maya collapse with a professor of anthropology at Indiana University, Dr. Ann Pyburn. And one of the points that Ann raised and one of the points that I think makes archaeology and anthropology generally very relevant to the contemporary world is that the uh, discussions of the Maya collapse have ramifications for understanding contemporary mobility and movement of populations in the present world, specifically with respect to the Maya who have been displaced and uh, extensively and now live in many parts of the world and especially in many parts of North America. And why don't you discuss the political environment and the political overtones of extending this discussion of archaeology into a more contemporary setting with respect to the Maya? Well, most people are not aware of the fact that the most productive agricultural strategy on earth today is small family farms uh, of the people who own their own land. This kind of farming is called small holding. The farmers are called small holders. And those people who invest in their land over time to improve its productivity and make sure that the productivity is sustainable. It's an intensive system. It outperforms any kind of mechanized uh, agriculture, any kind of um, uh, uh, mega uh, agriculture, um, because obviously you can you can always exploit your family more than anyone else. But people invest their their labor right. um, more willingly in uh, in production that they're going to benefit from, and that's going to supply their family for generations to come. This kind of agriculture has been identified all over the world. Um, the person who first um, outlined it was a, an anthropologist named Robert Netting, who studied it in Switzerland and in Africa. Um, so it occurs in many distinct environments. 
And uh, before he died some years ago, we talked about the Maya, the ancient Maya, and whether or not they were probably small holders. And he agreed that probably many of them were, but almost certainly not all of them. Small holding occurs alongside many other kinds of agriculture, including slash and burn. But what's important, I think, politically is to um, take take heart, take take to heart the the idea that small family farmers are not guilty of environmental destruction, that the mm-hmm. kind of rainforest destruction, the kind of um, uh, problems of the environment that are of most concern to the planet are are happening as a result of. Um, the destruction of rainforests for cattle farming, for humongous mining uh, operations, that those gigantic tracts of land that that really do result in complete deforestation, um, the sus- kind of small scale sustainable intensive production that uh, smallholders do is is just not the culprit, um, and blaming the victims, and that's what's happening when the the farmers who no longer uh, control their land but are, are doing the best they can with little or no uh, acceptable farmland for the destruction of the environment is is really blaming the victims. It's, it's, it's a, a really unfortunate thing to do. And it also results in a situation in which living people um, are not able to take pride in their ancestry. It suggests mm-hmm. to living Maya people that they're the leftovers of a great failure, that their way of doing things clearly uh, led to the collapse of, of their once great achievement. Um, literature about the Maya always talks about the peak in the 7th or 8th century. Um, Maya people have had many tremendous, incredible successes. If you don't define them all in terms of what the elite did um, in the 8th century, uh, you get a much more varied, and I think a much more interesting uh, picture of, of what's, what's possible for human beings, what kinds of uh, incredible um, uh, inventions and developments that people have been able to create. But in recent history, um, these, these ideas about the ancient Maya have been used for some pretty nefarious purposes. So during the Guatemalan Civil War, some of the generals in Guatemala who were responsible for genocide were quoted to me as having used archaeologists' um, accusations of the ancient Maya as, have, as having been violent and warlike as part of their excuse for genocide. Um, and obviously that's, that's ridiculous, but it suggests that archaeologists need to be a little more tempered and a little more careful about how they characterize, characterize an entire civilization. Most recently, the government of Belize has denied um, the Kekchi of southern Belize their rights to land, because about 300 years ago, those Maya people were enslaved by a, a German chocolate plantation owner and taken to Guatemala to work for him. They came back, but the government has said that they are uh, refugees and that they don't have rights to the land that they live on and that they couldn't possibly be descended from the people who lived in the area because they speak Kekchi and the hieroglyphs from those buildings are in Chol, a different Maya language. That's like saying that all the people who spoke Latin in the Middle Ages were Italian. At any rate, um, um, it's taken 25 years of fighting in international courts um, uh, and the testimony of um, 
of a number of anthropologists, including Richard Wilk, whom I mentioned earlier, for the Maya to finally succeed. Uh, the government just a couple of months ago of Belize gave up and ac- accepted that the Maya of Belize have land rights. And as a result of, of that change, other, uh, other groups in Belize have now begun to come forward and speak um, about their own um, indigenous situation and their own indigenous rights. So but it's Maya, sort of a right of return kind of. Yes, yes. But, you know, Maya people in, 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 Mes- in Mesoamerica oftentimes cannot afford the entrance fee to get into their, uh, the archaeological sites made by their ancestors. Right. And in situations like Tikal, where they're allowed in to worship, they're part of the tourist show. People come and stare at them. So um, we we have still got some serious, um, how shall I say, um, disruption um, in in the way uh, we understand the Maya people and in their in their cultural reality, both in the past and in the present. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up our program. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Ann Pyburn of Indiana University for this very informative and engaging discussion on the Maya collapse, both in terms of its antiquity, its politics, and to a large degree, its implications for the future and for contemporary uh, examinations of politics, land rights, and related issues. Thanks very much, Ann. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. And we will be back again at this time and next week. And until that time, I would just caution you that the past is an excellent guideway to the future. Pay attention to who lived before you and where they're going. Thank you very much, and we will we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.